1: Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hello and welcome to the On the NBA Beat podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Fishman, bringing to you a book review special, something we're planning to do much more of this abbreviated offseason. This episode will focus on the Knicks of the 90s, Ewing, Oakley, Starks, and the brawlers that almost won it all, written by Paul Nepper. Before getting into it, a quick disclosure is needed. I edited the book. Any bias from having worked on the project aside, I'm confident the typical NBA fan will enjoy this thoroughly researched and even more thoroughly reported piece of storytelling. It's nostalgic, but not overly sentimental. Its analytical and detailed quality produces more than enough emotion without the plot lines having to be overwritten. Paul, a former Bleacher Report writer, is a first-time author, though you wouldn't know it from reading the book. He also serves as one of several hosts of the New Books and Sports podcast. As we do with every new guest, let's get to the fun fact. When Paul was in college in the late 90s, football coach Bill Parcells cursed him out at a Jets practice. Typically those practices were open to the public, but this one was not. When Parcells noticed Paul peering through a window, he walked over and absolutely let him have it. Paul then left. Wouldn't you? Anyway, whether you're a Knicks fan looking for hope again or merely a break from the present state of affairs, a longtime fan from back in the day, or merely a sports aficionado or someone who loves a good story, thanks for tuning in. Here's that discussion. Thanks a lot for doing this. I'm looking forward to getting into it.
0: Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the book. You've compiled this phenomenal narrative through hard work and clearly no shortage of passion for this particular topic. I know your dad took you to Knicks games when you were growing up and you cited your son as a major inspiration for undertaking this project. If you don't mind just highlight for us the most noteworthy life experiences that led you to write this
0: um wow life experiences um you know i've always I, i've done some writing on and off for years uh, i wrote for a now defunct website um, i wrote for bleacher report for a few years so i've always had an interest in writing never really thought i would write a book but yeah it was a couple of months after my son was born and um I, I woke up one day, and uh, I was a huge fan of the '90s Knicks. And for some reason, I guess thought of them, and I, I don't—I don't remember my train of thought exactly. But train of thought, excuse me, exactly. But at some point, I thought somebody should really write a book about those teams. And then my next thought was, well, why not me? <laughs> and so I immediately—I uh, I was pretty sure there was not a book on the '90s Knicks, but I immediately went to. Uh, the computer and and looked around and searched around. And there was a book, Mike Wise and Frank Isola, who were beat writers for the Knicks, wrote a book on the 99 season. But there was not a book on that period as a whole. And um, I kind of decided to go for it. So there, there there wasn't any major instigating event, I guess, just other than the somewhat random birth of an idea.
1: No, that makes total sense. It sounds like a confluence of ideas and past experiences just as a big Knicks fan and someone who felt like he was capable of writing a book and and confident in doing it. And you certainly were. I I think that's surprising to me that there wasn't a book on that era more broadly. Um, And it sounds like maybe... Initially, when you start the project, like that could feel a little overwhelming, right? To have to condense so much information into a digestible narrative.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, the first step is to to gather all that information, um, which is a huge process in and of itself. But then to, yeah, synthesize it into a narrative is tough. I found one of the most difficult things about write, actually writing the book was deciding what not to put in the book because you get so immersed in this topic. Um, you know, it's like writing a dissertation. You're so, I, I'm, it's all, it's all I thought about for a couple of years and I'm just so heavily involved in. So there are these little nuggets of information or details that I pick up that I find really fascinating, maybe, but, um, but as someone who I have to, question is someone who is not immersed in this topic like I am, are they going to find this stuff interesting and these little details and do these details, you know, can I make them work within the flow of the book or do they, are they kind of digressions that, that somehow disrupt the flow? And so that was an ongoing challenging process.
1: Scott, I can identify with that so closely in writing my own nonfiction book. It's like you kind of have to fight yourself sometimes because something just seems so interesting, but then when you put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of the average reader, it's like am I really furthering the narrative or is this more just maybe more ego, something just because I think it's really fascinating? that I I feel like I have to include it, but it may not really serve my purpose.
0: Right. And for me personally, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not Jack McCallum, you know, I'm not Jeff Perlman. Uh, I'm not a big name author. I don't have the backing of a major publication. And so I think for me, there was a part of me as well that felt Like, I really want to show people that I did the work, I knew what I was talking about. And sometimes that included, you know, just sticking in as much information as I found and trying to just put it all out there and be like, hey, look what I did. Like, I'm, this is a legitimate work here. This is well researched. Um, But so I had to fight that instinct at times.
1: If possible, could you pinpoint the most exhilarating part of the process?
0: Well, yeah, not. I wouldn't say this isn't the writing part of it per se, but for me it was, you know, tracking down. First of all, getting in touch with certain people—it's a challenge uh, to to track down Jeff Van Gundy and John Starks and Charles Oakley and you know Rudy Tomjanovich and Rod Thorn from the NBA and a whole you know some big name people. Um, it was tough to get a hold of them, and then even if you could. Get information for them to actually get them to talk to you. So, the act of just it, it was often you know uh, several month or years. I mean, Charles Oakley, I pursued for a couple of years, just through a million different avenues, and finally got a hold of him. And I remember after finally, like after hanging up the phone with him, like, oh my god, like finally I got to trust. <laughs> and you know, because for a couple of reasons, one because he was, you know, he's in the the subtitle of the book; he's a very central character. And also because of the immense time and effort that went into it. Um, So just to talk to him was exhilarating. And then I think the other thing that was quite exhilarating was when you, when you, a few instances when I spoke to people and they gave me information that was really, really interesting and new, you know, and, um, and, and it's like while you're hearing it, while you're telling that they're telling you the story, it's like, Part of you is listening to the story and, you know, wanting to hear it. And, and part of you is thinking, oh, my God, this is gold. This is gold yeah. for the book. I can't wait to, you know, get this out there and share this with people and incorporate it into the story. So for me, that was kind of uh, the hunt, I guess you could call it, the hunt for for sources. And then, you know, some of the fascinating nuggets that came out of that hunt was the highest parts for me.
1: So you said two things I want to follow up on, but um, just so listeners know, I don't share the interview script with the person I'm interviewing beforehand. We did a little pre-interview just so we're on the same page, but you perfectly anticipated my next question. When you're reporting for a project like this, there's certain anecdotes or details that someone tells you that kind of just stop you in your tracks like what you're describing and it's like ooh, this is this is juicy or I had no idea about this and it's like you're trying to be a good active listener but also your mind might start to race about okay well who else can I talk to to corroborate this or what can I google or research otherwise over the course of writing your book there had to be a number of instances of those Are, are there any particular ones that come to mind
0: yeah um you described it very well. What you're going through when you, when those moments are happening. Thank um, you. I think you did too. A couple. Uh, so I talked to this. Uh, I talked to a guy named Dick Butera, and he's a very close friend of Pat Riley's. And in fact, when Pat left the Knicks, Butera negotiated his contract with the Heat. Butera wasn't an agent, but Butera had a bit of a relationship with Heat owner Mickey Arison, and Riley asked him to do it. That became very controversial and was actually the subject of a tampering lawsuit. Anyway, the Knicks in 1994 they lost in Game Seven of the NBA Finals, and that game was notorious for John Starks shooting two for 18 from the field, including one for 10 in the fourth quarter, and really shot the Knicks out of out of the game, out of their biggest game of the past 50 years. Um, and I'm talking to Butera, and he reveals to me that he hung out with Riley on the day of game seven. They hung out in in the Four Seasons in in Houston together all afternoon in Riley's hotel and they're getting ready to go to the game and they get, they're waiting for the elevator to go down, to leave the hotel and head to the arena. And Butera tells me that Riley looked at him and said, well, well, my friend, I know three guys who are going to show up tonight and Butera said, who? And he said, me, you and John. John being John Starks and like to hear that knowing, you know, that Stark shot two for 18 and there was so much, so much second guessing about Riley's decision to keep, to stick with Starks and not sit him down after he's bricking shot after shot after shot. And I, I just, when he, when he told me that, I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe Riley said that, that, basically of all the players on the team that Starks was the one guy he knew was going to show up. And then Starks had that, that terrible, you know, terrible uh, shooting night. So that was one. I mean, there are some stories, some stories about fights. Um, you know, I got wind of a fight where Charles Oakley, I mean, there's so many Charles Oakley stories and Charles Oakley fights in particular, but Charles Oakley got in a fight uh, on the team plane in 1988 like he's throwing haymakers with Sidney Green at 35,000 feet in the air. Wow. Um, he knocked Tyrone Hill unconscious before a Nick game in the early 90s, which I'd never heard about before. And so some of the fights, um, some of the behind the scenes uh, bickering, stuff like that, a great story about Charles Smith. There was a lot of stuff like that. But I think that the Starks comment, there was just something about that, that really just got to me like, wow, I can't believe, I can't believe Riley said that.
1: When you write about a topic that's so far in the past, I know it doesn't really feel like it's that long ago, but it it kind of was. (laughs) I think one major challenge would be fuzzier memories from people, but was a, a considerable benefit that people felt less guarded and, and were more willing to be open and transparent about what actually unfolded?
0: I think so. I do think so. Um, you know, there's the emotion, they're not as, as emotionally caught up in it as they were, you know, 25 years ago or, you know, even a couple of years after it happened or whatever it was. So I, I do think so. That's tricky though, man, the, the, the time is tricky. You know, some memory is a weird thing. Uh, sometimes we develop false memories or partial memories or, uh, you know, we block certain things out. And um, it's hard to ask people, hey, how did you feel when this happened 25 years ago? You know, and, and you may think back and say, well, I, you know, you may recall how you thought you felt or, or you know, I, I just think sometimes over time those memories get distorted and I even, you know, I found some instances where, you know, like Charles Oakley, for example, when I talked to him, made comments and and his rec- recollections of Pat Riley and a couple other incidents were very different now than his quotes at the time. Um, n- you know, not just that he views them differently, but that he, you know, like he says, "Oh, I never would have said this. I never, th- I never thought that. I never thought this." Well, well, you said it at the time. So the, the time, the time lag is interesting. There are some things that are um, some aspects of it become complicated. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're dead on. I think there are some benefits in that people are willing to talk about a lot of those things, you know, more openly years later.
1: I don't know if you tried to reach Patrick Ewing and and you weren't able to. That's maybe the main one that comes to mind, Pat Riley. I I wasn't sure um, if you were able to reach him. But your reporting more than makes up for not being able to interview any one figure, regardless of how important they are to the story. I should say reporting and research. But yeah, along those lines, who couldn't be reached for the project or declined to participate that you're most disappointed about? And, and basically was it just what I said that you just have to work around it by just reporting the hell out of the story and, and doing more research?
0: Yeah, you nailed them. You you nailed the two, uh, Riley and Ewing. And I knew both of them were going to be long shots going into it. Riley really doesn't do interviews anymore. One-on-one interviews, you know, a will hold press conferences, but uh, as far as I know, the last eight to ten years, he's only done like two, and they're both with Dan Levitard. He just doesn't do it anymore. And so I knew he would be a real long shot. Uh, a couple people in the in the business, much bigger names than myself, said they've been. I know Zach Lowe, for example, of ESPN, who's you know as big a basketball reporter as they come, has said that he's tried for years to get Riley and he can't get him. And then Patrick was the other Patrick. He does a lot more interviews than Riley. He's also notoriously very guarded. And if you notice, he tends to do interviews with people he's known for 30 plus years so that, that he's developed a, in the media that he's developed a relationship with and feels comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I tried to get him through Georgetown. I tried uh, Mike Jarvis, who was his high school coach who I interviewed um, reached out to him for me. I, I thought that was my best shot, but it didn't pan out, but no, you're right. And here's the thing. Like, I think you can – I mean, if you give me a choice between talking to Patrick Ewing, especially Patrick Ewing, who's very guarded, and talking to five to ten people who knew Patrick Ewing well about Patrick Ewing, I'll take the five to ten people any day. Um, I think they offer different perspectives. I think they are probably more honest than Patrick might be. You know, I just think they see him in a different light, and you could get – you know, I spoke to Mike Jarvis, who knew Patrick was not just his high school coach, but knew him when he was very young. You know, I spoke to someone who played with him at Georgetown. I spoke to a lot of his big teammates, coaches, on and on. And so you start to paint the picture through all those different sources. And then, of course, you know, there's been a great deal written about Patrick going back to when he was in high school. So you, you study that stuff and you read up on anything and everything you can get your hands on.
1: For this next one, I have a feeling I know where you're going with this. I, I have a guess, at least, but of the, all the colorful characters that you help bring to life through your storytelling, who do you think was the most colorful?
0: For me, it was Oakley.
1: That's what I thought uh, you were going to
0: say. Yeah, I interviewed close to a hundred people for the book, and everyone had an Oak story to the point that, like, I would actually ask people, "Okay, give me your best Oakley story," and I'd say seven out of ten of them were about what a tough, physical intimidating scary guy he was and three out of ten were what a kind gentle caring unselfish man he is um i i I never imagined i would hear multiple people use the word sweetheart to describe charles oakley and (laughs) and i think that's that's you know what made him that's what makes him so interesting is he had a real tough side and, and that wasn't a I mean, that wasn't a front. He was a legitimate tough guy. He beat people up for real. I mean, he was, I talk about in the book, there were players on other teams who were legitimately afraid of him and for good reason. And yet he had this very soft, gentle side and, you know, he would do anything for a friend. He would do anything for a teammate. Um, Just, you know, little things like I, I spoke to one of the ball boys who told me, you know, he mentioned to Oak that he had his eighth grade dance coming up and Oakley said, Oh, cool, you know, I'll give you my car and my driver to take you to the dance. And that's just it's a simple thing. But, you know, to, a, to an eighth grader, I mean, that means the world. And um, so he did a lot of things. There are a lot of stories like that. And so I, I found that really interesting.
1: I think it's important for us to discuss the nostalgia factor. You ended the epilogue, and I guess by extension the book, with this poignant line. Gone are the days of brutal battles between heated rivals and the primal passion they evoked in players and fans. And as you and I both know, 90s nostalgia is a very real thing in sports and otherwise. And we saw it recently this year with the docuseries The Last Dance on the 90s Bulls, which overlaps a good deal with your book, of course. What are the main aspects of how these Knicks went about their business that you and I'm sure a number of your readers are pining for right now? That's missing in today's NBA.
0: Yeah, the tricky part about that is, um, you know, for Knicks, it's comp- it's there's another layer to it for Knicks fans in that you know the '90s the Knicks were really good competitive team that went to the finals twice, that went to the playoffs every year, and now they have the most losses in the league in the 21st century. They've been dismal for 20 years. So I think regardless of style of play, I think any Knicks fan who is around them has nostalgia for those days just because they were competitive. But as for the play specifically, uh, the physicality. There seemed to be greater intensity. There seemed to be, and I think the physicality contributed to that. Um, every time down the floor, every possession felt like a battle. So that's one. I I also think there was more player continuity then. I think you have a lot of, certainly among stars, but even in general, the contracts are shorter now. And so guys aren't, teams aren't together quite as long. And so there was something about the 90s where Patrick and the Knicks played Jordan and the Bulls in the playoffs five times from the late 80s to the mid-90s. They played the Heat four years in a row in the playoffs. They played the Pacers six times from 93 to 2000. And a lot of that was, I think, you know, and it was the same guys, you know, Reggie Miller was with with Indiana the whole time. Patrick was with New York the whole time. Throughout the whole decade, you know, you had less player movement. And so I think between the intensity that came about from the physicality and the continuity of the, the rosters, you developed uh, greater intensity in the matchups, greater intensity in individual games, and greater intensity between teams and rivalries in that sense.
1: You referenced the Knicks ineptitude in the last couple decades. I have a sad I wanted to cite before posing the question to you. In the 20 years since Ewing's last season in town, that was the 99-2000 season, the Knicks have won a grand total of one playoff series, and they've made just five playoff appearances over that stretch. And, of course, in the Ewing era, New York made the playoffs all but twice, and those were Ewing's first two seasons in the league. Could you offer words of encouragement or give the contemporary Knicks fan, anything right now that would make them feel better. Um, other, I mean, I'm sure they don't want to just give up and start rooting for the Knicks.
0: (laughs) Um, oh man, this is, this is sorry. uh, I said, did I say Knicks or Nets? Yeah. You you said Knicks, but you meant Nets. I know what you meant. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is like a, you know, this is an ongoing game I have to play with myself. To, to, <laughs> to not get too down as a Knicks fan, to try and stay up. I mean, you know, it, it's been brutal, uh, and Dolan gets a lot of the blame for it, and I, and I, I believe deservedly. Um, I think he's been a big source of the problem. But I do believe it can turn, I, and, and I think it could turn quickly. It, it happens. Um, teams that have been really bad for a really long time, you get the right people in place and you get a little bit of luck and all of a sudden you're you know a great team i mean the the, the cleveland cavaliers were down for a while they weren't a particularly well run franchise which is why they ended up with a number 1 pick and they got lebron james and you know that completely changed the course of their franchise and you don't have to get a lebron james to do that necessarily you need the right people i think a lot of the problem is dolan has not hired the right people to run his team and and in this instances where he has uh, he's, he's subverted their authority. And so I think, um, I don't know about Leon Rose. I hope he's the guy. Uh, I think time will tell, but I would just say that things can turn around relatively quickly, even when it feels like, you know, it's been bad forever. The Clippers were a horrendous franchise for many years. Um, my whole childhood and they were kind of laughing stock of the league and they turned it around they got blake griffin Mm -hmm. they got chris paul and and now of course they have Kawhi and paul george but for the past you know seven eight years whatever it's been they've been a very good competitive team so history is history um it can turn around that's the best i could give you
1: (laughs) sounds like there's hope yes yeah even if it's just a glamour there's always hope yeah stay tuned we'll be right back with more show
0: Hey, this is Katie Wingy, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat.
1: Charles Oakley told you we were always one player away, one possession away, one win away. We should be called one away. A convincing case can be made that the Knicks would have won a championship during the early 90s if not for the presence of those aforementioned Bulls and Michael Jordan. Um, I mean, I know that counterfactual isn't really useful or relevant, but I'd love for you to, to just go over how close the Knicks came to actually winning it all during this era.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, well, certainly the closest they came was 94 when actually Michael was not playing. He was playing uh, minor league baseball at the time, but.
1: And that was the first season of his first retirement, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Um. The Knicks lost Game 7 in the NBA Finals. I mean, you can't get any closer to that. And, well, to get even closer, at the end of Game 6, down 2, John Starks attempted a 3 virtually at the buzzer that Kim Lajuan made one of the great blocks I've ever seen. He somehow got his fingertips on the ball and it fell just short. But, you know, Starks was so hot in that fourth quarter. If Starks hit that shot, they win the championship. So they were a shot away in 94. Uh, 93, some people think that 93 team was even better than the 94 team. That was the year that Jordan won his third championship. And the Bulls beat the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals in six games. A tightly fought six games. The Knicks were actually up 2-0 in that series and had a really good shot to take game five that would have put them up 3-2 and with home court advantage. But the Bulls eked it out and I think if the Knicks had won that series, there's a very good chance they would have they won the championship that year. Um, so those are really the two closest, I would say. They went to the finals again years later in 99, um, mm-hmm. lost to Tim Duncan, Dave Robinson, and the Spurs. And Patrick was hurt in that series. He didn't play. So that I, thi- I think the Spurs win that anyway. But, you know, you get to the finals, it's pretty close.
1: Yeah, that was kind of a weird year. That was the lockout shortened season where the Knicks were the 8th seed, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, they were the 8th seed. It was And the Spurs really were run. dominant.
1: They I think their winning percentage was 740 or something and they just that was their first championship of the Duncan era. And then yeah. they won 4 over the next 9 seasons. Yep. Now that we're 35 years removed from the 85 draft when the Knicks selected Ewing first overall and more than 26 from that finals appearance against the Rockets, are there any popular misconceptions about the 90s era Knicks? Um just anything that you hear often that you don't you think is misleading or inaccurate?
0: I think Patrick gets a bad rap. You know, people say he couldn't get them over the hump and he couldn't beat Jordan and, uh, you know, he lost to Olajuwon in the finals and all those things are true. But nobody could beat Jordan then. Um, And Olajuwon is, I think, at least top 15, possibly a top 10 player ever. I mean, he was magnificent. And the other thing is that Patrick didn't, you know, look at his career, look at his teammates, he never played with uh, another Hall of Fame player. And you know, of course, Michael had Scotty, and in the later years, he had Rodman. Um, and you know, we look at it in recent years, it's guys, guys went. You know, LeBron is Anthony Davis now. He had he had Dwayne Wade and Bosh in Miami. He had Kyrie in, in Cleveland. Um, you typically need another great player, another uh, you know, a Robin to your Batman to win it all. And Patrick never had that, and yet I think it took a lot of criticism for the team's shortcomings when very often it was just that he didn't have enough help. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's kind of a misconception that Patrick, you know, couldn't get it done.
1: I'd love for you to briefly discuss the ending of this era, how that looked. You did reference their kind of strange finals appearance in that lockout shortened 98, 99 season, another year in which Jordan was temporarily away from the game. And Patrick Ewing had that Achilles tendon tear. And so he didn't play in any of that finals and missed most of the Eastern Conference finals games against Indiana. And then when he did return the next season, it was 20 games in and the team had forged a whole different identity. So talk a little bit about how the team transitioned away from Ewing and how you'd assess how they handled that.
0: Yeah. I mean, Patrick, he was getting old. So in 99, he had a partially torn Achilles tendon, which is, you know, is a serious injury for a basketball player. And he was 36 years old at that point. And um, his game was starting to decline. And maybe more importantly, his body was starting to break down. And so the next season, especially as you noted, he didn't play the first 20 games. So they really kind of, the process had started already the year before of turning into more of a perimeter oriented team around Spreewell in Houston, and that process accelerated when Patrick was out the next year. And when he came back, I think he had a very hard time adjusting to that. And Van Gundy has a quote that he's used many times that, uh, I'm going to botch this now, but it's to the effect that the hardest thing in basketball to coach is a superstar in decline. And that's what Patrick was at that time. And so... I think Matt Gunney did a good job of dealing with that. Patrick was very frustrated by that. And consequently, after that season, he demanded a trade. I, I view that trade, the Patrick trade, as kind of the beginning of the downward spiral. I spoke to Dave Checkett, who was president of the Garden. He felt that they owed it to Patrick to respect his wishes, that initially he tried to talk him out of it. But, you know, Patrick wanted to go, and Patrick had done so much for the franchise for 15 years that they owed it to him to, to trade him if he really wanted to be traded. But it ended up being a really bad move in that Patrick had one year left on his contract, they should have let him play out that contract, he let his, you know, contract expire and then let him go or bring him back at a very low rate. Instead, they traded him for some really bad contracts and, and then later flipped those bad contracts for worse contracts and that was kind of the beginning of just poor personnel moves um poor use of the salary cap and it it was almost like they kept trying to they got more and more desperate to try and find a quick fix or or you know an immediate solution and in the process would dig themselves further and further into a hole Mm -hmm. but i i think that's really that's really when it started And, and soon after that they traded patrick and a year later Larry Johnson, who was a big part of that team, was forced to retire because of back issues. And um, a couple months after he retired, Van Gundy uh, resigned as coach. And that was really kind of the end of that era.
1: This has been an absolute pleasure. I always love talking with authors. I just have one more question for you. Sure. And that is just about the book promotion process and how it's been getting the word out about this project that you've undertaken and uh, feel free to incorporate how the pandemic has affected that. If it has at all, just love to learn more about that process.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a misconception uh, among people that when you write a book that your publisher, you know, kind of rolls out the red carpet and promotes the heck out of it and uh that they have publicists on the case and this and that and uh you know I, don't, I mean barack obama has a book coming out next month i'm sure i'm sure he'll get that treatment um <laughs> i i think that you know there are some i think the really big name authors get that but even I, I i've talked to uh jeff perlman about this who's written i think nine new york times bestsellers a much bigger name than myself and he said his publisher does virtually nothing that it's all on the, the writer. I think back in the day, publishers had bigger budgets and they did do that more. But now it's really on the writer to get the word out there to get your name out there. And so you know, you, you, I mean, for me personally, I've reached, I've looked at basketball podcasts, NBA podcasts, and tried to reach out to anybody who does an NBA podcast or basketball podcast. Um There are a lot of people who there are a lot of Nick specific podcasts who I've reached out to. I've, you know, Contacted all of the the New York Nick beat writers for the local papers, for you know local New York papers, and said, "Hey, I wrote this book, and here's the info on it, and love to talk to you about it. You know, maybe you can do a story on it, something like that." Um, and I did have a, a big piece that came out in the New York Post on Sunday, which was nice. Um, That's really cool. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, That's a else? great rundown. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, there's more like. You just gotta, you know, it's like the book, you know, you, you, when you write that book, you do everything you can, you research every angle, try and get every piece of information and you have to promote it the same way. You just, uh, you know, you think about, well, who do I know? You know, is there anybody I can ask to call in a favor or this or that? You know, I have a good friend who's whose father-in-law knows, uh, you know, a writer from one of the New York papers that I remember this one back in the day. So I called him up, Hey, does your father-in-law still know so-and-so? And And can you, you know, you could could reach out to him and and get him a copy of my book like that. um,
1: Yeah. I would think also, depending on your personality, it could be a little bit tricky or uncomfortable. If as a writer, you're kind of used to not being part of the story and it, it sometimes feels like, you're being shameless in your promotion of yourself and the project. But nowadays you kind of have to be, and it's corny, but everyone says you're your biggest advocate. So you have to fight for yourself and you know, personally, no one else knows as well as you, how hard you worked on this project. So I I can, it just seems like unless, unless I'm, you're the type of person that just is, is used to being in the spotlight and thrives on it. I, I think it would be a little bit challenging.
0: Oh yeah, it, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I'm I'm uh, pretty reserved. Uh, I don't know if I would say shy, but certainly introvert, introverted person. Same. And it doesn't come naturally to me at all. I and mean, we've been in social situations where, when I was writing the book, people would ask me what you do, this and that, and I was like, I wasn't even inclined to tell people I was writing a book because I, I just. I don't like talking about myself that much. And mm-hmm. often my wife would be like, Oh, this is my, Oh, my husband Paul is writing this book, blah, blah. blah. And people are like, what? You never, you didn't say anything about a book. So yeah, it's definitely outside my comfort zone to reach out to people, even people I know, even friends of mine and ask them for favors. Um, but certainly people I don't know and say, Hey, you know, look at me, look what I did. <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about it. Um, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but like you said, it's, You have to do it you know you you you, i I put in so much time and effort into this book and so i i owe it to myself to you know put an equal effort into trying to promote it Mm
1: -hmm. well i'm glad you did it and i hope a lot of people read it and good luck to the knicks who uh, are gonna be participating in the draft in a couple weeks as they chase the glory of previous decades yeah well thanks aaron
0: i really enjoyed really enjoyed talking to you
1: thanks a lot it was fun